The Children Trap The Biblical Blueprint for Education This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit garynorth.com forward slash freebooks to download this book. Chapter 5 Education Should Be Voluntary Quote, And Moses commanded them, saying, Quote, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. End quote. End quote. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 10 to 13. Several comments are in order. First, the law was to be read to all the residents of the land, believers and unbelievers, once every seven years. This public event was part of the civil covenant with God. God held each person accountable to observe his law, and he held the authorities accountable for its enforcement. Ignorance of the law was no excuse for breaking it, for no one in the land was to remain ignorant of God's law. Second, because this event was to take place only once every seven years, strangers and unbelieving residents in Israel were not required to attend regular religious services in which they might hear the law. Only once in every seven years was the civil requirement imposed on them. Third, this law was supposed to be enforced only during the Old Testament era in which Israel remained in the Promised Land. Once they went into foreign lands, they could not be expected to enforce such a requirement. Attendance at this occasional civil ceremony was required of all residents of the land, but it was a civil ceremony. While all the law was read, it was primarily a civil law function as far as it pertained to the unbelieving stranger within the gates, protection of Israel. Compulsory Church Attendance Let me try out the following argument. See if you agree or disagree. Quote, Nothing is more important on earth than to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. Every person should have an opportunity to hear the gospel of Christ. Therefore, the civil government should pass a law that requires each person to send his children to a Bible-believing church every Sunday until the child reaches the age of 16 years old. This will make them better informed, God-fearing citizens, and therefore it will enable them to meet the requirements of well-informed citizenship in our nation. End quote. Such arguments do not ring true in the ears of modern men. Yet, for well over a thousand years, this line of argumentation would have appeared false, not because it requires people to attend church, but because of its suspicious weakness. Almost no Christian society in the Middle Ages would have exempted anyone over age 16 from attending church weekly. It was not just children who were required to attend, it was everyone except Jews who were given a special exemption. Why don't we believe these arguments anymore? Many reasons. We see that this would involve the civil government in a positive fashion. The state would be requiring people to do something. Unless we are socialists, we see the state as an institution for suppressing public evil, not making men good. The state is supposed to be a negative authority. 
not a positive instrument of salvation. We also see that such compulsory attendance laws would interfere with men's freedom to make up their own minds about God, and they would interfere with a family's legal immunity, right from state interference in teaching their children the religion of the household. It is the parents' God-given responsibility to train their children, not the state's. Irresponsible parents? But what about the following response? Quote, But we know that some parents are irresponsible. They do not know God. They care nothing about God. They will teach their children a false view of God. They will not obey God and train their children in the admonition of the Lord. Thus, it is our responsibility as Christian citizens to compel these short-sighted parents to send their children to church. End quote. Are there irresponsible parents? Of course. Will these parents refuse to send their children to church? Most certainly. Should their children hear the gospel? Absolutely. God will hold both the parents and the children responsible on Judgment Day. But are these arguments a sufficient reason for taking the children away from the parents one day a week to indoctrinate them? That is the word in a rival religion. Even if the religion is Christianity? I don't think so, and I don't think you do either. But the humanists require Christians to send their children to state-licensed schools five days a week, six hours a day, and then encourage the children to get involved in after-school extracurricular activities. Let's ask another important series of questions. Are there parents who will not give their children religious instruction? No, there aren't. Every parent gives his children religious instruction. There is no neutrality. They may give them instruction in a religion other than Christianity. Maybe they will teach them Judaism or Islam or Buddhism. Maybe they will teach them alcoholism or revolutionism or debauchery. Maybe, probably these days, it will be humanism. But some world and life view will be taught in the home. There is no escape from a worldview. Men cannot think or act without one. Therefore, any attempt on the part of the state to require a child to listen to Christian preaching once a week is an assault on the families of those who do not accept Christianity. Of necessity, such a law would be an attempt to impose a rival religion on the families of unbelievers. It is not simply a question of obeying civil laws that suppress public evil. All law systems have to suppress public evil. We are speaking here of a law to shape the thinking of another person's children. The Gospel Disrupts Families Jesus warned how powerful his gospel is. It is disruptive of families. Quote, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those of his own household. Micah chapter 7 verse 6 He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. End quote. Matthew chapter 10 verses 34 to 37 Thus, any attempt to require by civil law that any non-Christian parent send his children to church is a direct attack on his family? Is such an attack valid, even if the person refuses to instruct his children in the Christian faith? 
Few Christians today would argue that it is, despite the eternal consequences for the children of rejecting the gospel. The legal integrity of the family must be preserved. The state is to keep out. Yet there are millions and millions of Christians who vote for politicians who enact laws that compel Christian families to send their children into unsafe, drug-infested, humanist-dominated, anti-Christian sinkholes, public schools. These same Christian parents also allow the state to extract tax money to build these schools, pay the salaries of teachers, and forcibly transport their children across town, quote, for reasons of racial balance, unquote. Only this last infringement on family integrity, forcible busing, has outraged white parents, Christian and non-Christian, which indicates that the commitment to bloodlines, race, is the only thing more important to voters than their commitment to public education. This is a sad testimony. A state-established church. What Christians have refused to admit is that the public schools are today a state-established church. The religion they teach is the religion of humanism. It is hidden in the lie that education can be neutral. Christians have bought this lie and, in the name of literacy, they have voted away their family's legal integrity and the legal integrity of all other families. What they refuse to do in the name of the gospel of eternal salvation compel non-Christian parents to send their children to church one hour a week. They gladly do in the name of universal literacy. But God will not be mocked. The government-financed schools no longer produce universal literacy. The state has a legal monopoly of coercion. Quote, Then when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and laid him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found of man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross, end quote. Matthew chapter 27, verses 31 and 32. The first step in any long-term program of Christian political action is to decide what the Bible says are the lawful tasks for civil government. We need to know what is prohibited to the state and what is required of the state. This passage describes an incident in the crucifixion of Christ. We learn what distinguishes civil government from other institutions. Civil governments have the power of force. The soldiers compelled Simon of Cyrene to carry our Lord's cross. The power to use force is clearly given by God to civil rulers. Paul states in Romans chapter 13 verse 1, quote, The authorities that exist are appointed by God, end quote. Paul refers to civil rulers as, quote, ministers of God, end quote, and says the ruler, quote, does not bear the sword in vain, end quote, chapter 13 verse 4. Swords were used in ancient times as instruments of death. God has instituted the state and given it the police power. The state not only may use, but must use capital punishment to punish evildoers who commit capital crimes, such as premeditated murder and kidnapping. The power of the sword is strictly limited in the Bible. One of the clichés popular among conservatives is that we believe in, quote, limited government, unquote. The problem is that we seldom say what we mean by the term. Limited to what? Some persons say the government ought to do for the people what the people cannot do for themselves. Who is to say what people cannot do for themselves? 
By what standards does a society properly make such a determination? The only proper guide to follow is the Bible. What are the limitations on civil government that are set forth in the Word of God? Paul informs us in Romans 13 that the civil ruler is to be, quote, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil, end quote, quote, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil, end quote. Paul states in chapter 13, verse 3, for more details on, for more details on biblical civil government, see Gary DeMar's book in the Biblical Blueprint series, Ruler of the Nations. Should the police run the schools? The answer to this question ought to be obvious. Of course the police should not be running the schools. The police should be out catching criminals and bringing them to justice. The duty of government is to, quote, punish evildoers, end quote. Now, suppose we ask the question another way. Should the county or city run a school system? Quote, well, of course it should, end quote, many Christians will reply, quote, after all, how else are the children going to get educated? End quote. We may be given a dozen reasons why the government should be in the education business. The police power of the civil government supposedly must be applied to parents to compel them to educate their children. Then comes the next argument. Quote, Since some persons just can't afford to obey this law, the civil government has a moral and legal obligation to supply free schools, end quote. How, quote, free, unquote, are these schools? As, quote, free of charge, unquote, as your property tax bills, paid until you die, whether or not you have school-aged children? The police power. It is helpful to know where the word police originated. This familiar word comes from the Greek word for city. In Greek, the word is polis. The Greek word has survived in such names as Indiana polis and Dikap polis. The famous Greek temple, the Parthenon, was built on the Acropolis, which means the highest part of the city. In ancient Greeks, there were city-states such as Athens and Sparta. Today we have cities, towns, counties, states and other units of civil government. In addition, there is the ever-present federal government, not to mention efforts to establish one world government. The police are hired by governments. Generally, we associate the police with local governments. Because the police have so much power, that's why we usually refer to them as the police force, we consider it desirable to keep them under the control of our counties and cities. A few years ago, the bumper sticker, Support Your Local Police, was promoted to block the idea of a national police force. For the same reason that we want local control over the police, we might argue that we should have local control over our schools. Let's have, quote, neighbourhood, unquote, schools controlled by locally elected officials. I agree that if the schools are going to be run by the government, then local control is best. But why should government, at any level, operate the schools? Civil governments are given the power of force, the police power, to punish evildoers. The public school system is based on the idea of force. It should be called a government school system because it is run by the government. In effect, the civil government or public schools are operated by the police. It does not matter that the persons in charge in the classrooms are called teachers 
or that there are principals and superintendents over them, they are able to operate as they do only because they have the police power, the power of force, coercive education. The public school system operates on the principle of compulsion in two respects. Compulsory attendance laws to force the students to come and compulsory taxation to force the taxpayers to pay the bill. The two go together. Because school attendance is mandatory, the money to operate the school is mandatory. In a later chapter, I will discuss the financing of the public school system. For now, let us focus our attention on the compulsory attendance laws. Compulsory attendance laws have been in the book since the beginning in the state of Massachusetts. The Puritans passed a compulsory attendance law in 1647. Quote, It is therefore ordered that every township in this jurisdiction, after the Lord hath increased them to the number of fifty household, shall then forthwith appoint one within their town to teach all such children as shall resort to him to read and write, whose wages shall be paid either by the parents or masters of such children, or by the inhabitants in general. End quote. It was this long tradition of compulsory Christian education, which was in part financed by the taxing authority of the civil government, that two centuries later served Horace Mann so well in his call to establish taxpayer-financed non-Christian schools in Massachusetts. Taxpayer-financed education in the southern United States came in full force after the South lost the Civil War in 1865. Compulsory education laws were dropped briefly in the late 1950s and early 1960s, when massive resistance to racial integration was in style. The state of Virginia did not have compulsory attendance in these years, and possibly some other states dropped compulsory attendance laws for a period of time. To my knowledge, all states now have such laws. The wording of the laws varies from state to state, enforcing what most people already do. It should be understood that it is difficult in a nation that has a democratic or republican form of government to get voters to support civil measures that they do not support privately. An illiterate nation is unlikely to vote for compulsory school laws. Only where there is already a high degree of literacy in a society will voters approve universal, taxpayer-financed education. What the vast majority of people have already done for their own children taught them to read, they then vote to make compulsory on the tiny minority of citizens or residents who have refused to imitate the majority voluntarily. Thus, compulsory attendance laws can do very little to improve a nation's educational standards. As we have seen for two generations in the United States, the nation's literacy rate has actually dropped. Legalised Kidnapping and Desertion The discussion of school attendance laws never centres around whether there ought to be such laws, but rather what should be the age limits and what exceptions, if any, ought to be allowed. The government, in effect, claims the children at all ages, just as the government claims all our income and exempts some from taxation, so political leaders claim our children from birth. The debate in the legislatures is only over the age at which children must attend school, the hours of attendance and the number of days per year. The legislature of Virginia has even decreed that school must not begin until after Labor Day. The purpose of this law is to, quote, keep Virginia green, unquote, 
by luring the local tourists to spend for one more holiday weekend. Literacy is one thing, but tourism is really important, is really important politically. The trend in recent years has been to require children to attend school at an ever younger age. There are several reasons for this. The humanists want to get the children away from their parents sooner. They consider some of the kids hopeless reactionaries by the time they are six years old. The children have been indoctrinated so much by their parents that the school has difficulty re-educating them. Another reason for early school entrance is that more parents are going to work, so they want taxpayer finance babysitting as soon as possible. Perhaps the most important reason is that if early taxpayer financed education isn't available, the parents will start their children in private schools. They may decide to keep them in the private schools after they reach the compulsory school age. When I started my Christian school in 1961, there was no kindergarten program in the Fairfax school system. I started one. We had the children reading by the time they were ready to enter the first grade. Parents hesitated to enrol their children in the local government school to be taught the material the children had already learned, so they kept them in my school. This story was repeated in numerous Christian schools. So Fairfax County started a kindergarten program. The children were not taught to read, but they were kept out of Christian schools that would have taught them to read. Coercive root, third-rate fruit. Here is a partial list of problems caused by compulsory attendance laws. 1. Parents who want to educate their children at home find themselves being treated as criminals. 2. Private schools are harassed in various ways. Since children must attend school, the state finds it necessary to define what a school is. The logical outcome is an endless stream of regulations dealing with teacher qualifications, curriculum, days and hours of operation, etc. etc. The schools that don't knuckle under are then targeted for further police action. 3. Children are sent to school whether they want to be there or not. A case might be made that a 6-year-old should not be choosing whether to go to school or out to play, but a 17-year-old is a different matter. The schools are stuck with bored teenagers who haven't the slightest interest in the education being offered. They become rebellious, disrupt the classes, lower the morale of the teachers, and in numerous ways make a general nuisance of themselves. The police are not far away though, I mean the uniformed kind. They are sent into the classrooms to control the crime. The real crime is forcing these kids into the classroom in the first place. An even worse crime is requiring decent kids to have to associate with these hoods. And another crime on top of this is making everybody else pay the bill. 4. Parents, children and the public are lulled into believing that the students have received an education. After all, they have attended school for the prescribed number of years and have now received a diploma. Many of them cannot read their diploma, but who cares? The state says they are educated. They have graduated from accredited schools with certified teachers. 5. Because school attendance is compulsory, the state must provide it. And it is all free. Free public education. How many times have we heard this? Yet there is nothing free about it. 
public education is very expensive, it wastes the lives of students, the major cost of public education, it reduces the God-given authority of the parents, thereby reducing their sense of personal responsibility for their children, another hidden cost. Finally, the money to pay for it does not come from charity either. Compulsory school attendance leads directly to compulsory financing, spelled T-A-X-E-S. Compulsory education is a failure. Prove it, you say. I could cite all kinds of statistics, data, reports, studies, books and articles from within the educational establishment to prove the existence of massive failure. But every literate person who has read anything in the newspapers about public education already knows about these reports. The public schools are getting a D on their report cards, even though the people grading them are generally favourable towards taxpayer-financed education. President Reagan's Special Commission on Education found the public school so terribly deficient that its report was dismally entitled A Nation at Risk. I could also find plenty of proof from other sources as well. I don't intend to do that. Others have made the point. Rudolf Flesch wrote his famous Why Johnny Can't Read in the 1950s. Years later, he wrote Why Johnny Still Can't Read. Johnny can't spell either. And he can't add and subtract or do a whole lot of things. So why beat a dead horse? We all know about the failure of the public schools. The debate begins when we try to assess proper responsibility for the failure. The defenders refuse to admit that it is the compulsory nature of modern education that has led to the failure. For well over a century, the failure of the schools has been explained away by employees of the schools in terms of one answer. More money needed here. This is another way for them to point at your wallet and mine and announce less money needed there. If a particular year or model of car gains a reputation of being a lemon, would it be smart for the company to raise its price before it finds out what is wrong with the car? If, after a hundred years of trying to get some product improved, its performance gets worse, should its producer raise its price by 15% each year? There is only one way that the producer could get away with such a pricing policy. Compel people to buy it. This is the long and short of the massive, visible failure of public education. But how do we know for certain that compulsory education is a failure? After all, the public schools are spending a lot of money on education. They have impressive buildings. More and more students are going on to college. I have just one question to ask. If public schools are so successful, why do we have to force children to attend? The promise of public education is similar to the promise of communism. The Soviet Union is always telling us how wonderful communism is. If this really is the case, then why don't they tear down the Iron Curtain and put in a picture window? Why do they have to erect a wall around East Berlin to keep the residents from running away? Why would anyone want to escape from a worker's paradise? Why do they vote with their feet? The answer is obvious. As applied to education, I ask the question again. If the education offered by government schools is all that good, then why do they send the police to round up the kids who aren't in attendance? 
After all, tuition for public education is zero. Parents pay taxes whether their children attend public schools or not. If taxpayer-financed education is both good and free, then why does anyone need to be forced to get it for his children? Are people so stupid that they don't know what a nice deal is when they see it? Another question comes to mind. Why are all these families voting against the public schools with their pocketbooks? Why are they paying taxes to the public schools for, quote, the best education money can buy, and then shelling out tuition money on top of that in order to send their children to a private school? Are they so rich that they don't miss the money? Are they snobs who send their kids to private schools for status? Let me answer some of these questions. The parents who are choosing the private schools for their children are not rich. For the most part, they're just average on the economic ladder. Vance Packard in The Status Seekers admits that the rich are sending their kids to the public schools. The idea that private schools are just for the rich may have been true several decades ago. It isn't today. Parents are selecting the non-public schools because they are convinced their children are getting a better education in those schools. These parents are making decisions based on personal experience with both kinds of schools. They are more aware of the teaching that takes place in the government schools. As a result, they are making the sacrifices necessary to obtain a better education for their children. On playing hooky When I was in elementary school, I learned about playing hooky. That was a rarity in our four-room country school because we had a mean principle. If you got a licking in school, you could also figure on getting another one when you got home. The parents backed the principle. Times have changed. We still have compulsory school laws, but hooky playing has greatly increased. In many of our large city school systems, as many as one-fourth of the students will be truant on any given day. The public schools of the District of Columbia decided to have school on Good Friday in 1986. Probably they think having a holiday that is mixing education with Christianity. 50% of the students didn't come to class. 40% of the teachers failed to attend. They say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. In the case of the students, it is difficult even to get him to the water of learning. When you get him there, you can't make him think. It is easy to pass laws. Well, not all that easy. I served in the Virginia legislature, and they sure didn't want to pass the bills I introduced. It is something else to enforce them. The country is full of missing children. Most of them carried off by a parent. The authorities can't locate them, let alone keep tabs on every kid on the block. Even if they can get the kids in school, the teachers may find that students aren't functioning because they are hungry, or on dope, or mentally out of it for some other reason. The compulsory attendance laws are a failure. Their only success, from a humanistic point of view, has been their use in making life difficult for Christian parents who want to take charge of the education of their offspring. The Biblical Alternative to Compulsory School Laws the biblical alternative to compulsory school laws is to abolish them. Who needs them? Ah, you say, but what about all the children who won't get an education if you do away with the compulsory school laws? 
My answer is this. There are millions of children who are not getting an education now under the compulsory school laws. The percentage of functional literates today is probably higher than it was in the era of the American Revolution, when there were few public schools outside of New England. God will not be mocked. The Christian alternative is for parents to assume their responsibility for the education of their children. We are not to think that we are wiser than God. God God has given parents the task of bringing up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They may and should use the compulsion of the rod, if necessary, to train up the children. This is the rod of reproof. It is the discipline of the parents. It is not to be confused with the power of the sword given by God to civil rulers. Because the financing is different, public versus private, the structure of authority is different, therefore the whole educational atmosphere is different. The school now operates in a climate of voluntary exchange between those operating the school and the parents who are engaging the services of the school to aid in carrying out their God-given responsibilities. Christians are responsible. We are in a war for the hearts and souls of men. It has been going on since Eden. Christ, by his death and resurrection, regained the deed to the world that Adam had forfeited to Satan. Christians are therefore to exercise greater and greater dominion in a fair fight, meaning an unsubsidized, non-coercive competitive struggle, Christianity will defeat all rivals. Unfortunately, few Christians seem to believe this. Jesus said that he had been given all authority in heaven and earth. Matthew chapter 28 verse 18. Christians for a long time haven't seemed to understand that either. This is at last beginning to change. If your children were competing against communists for a job, would you vote to have your taxes raised in order to give the money to the sons and daughters of the communists? If the communists were illiterate and you were willing to finance your children's education, would you regard this as a bad thing? Why not allow people to follow their views concerning God, man, law and the future? Why not allow responsible Christians to triumph over their irresponsible enemies? The only answer that Christian intellectuals give is some version of, quote, Through the coercive power of civil government, Christians morally and legally owe a tax-subsidised education to their enemies. We don't. We owe them equal justice before God's revealed law, nothing else. Civil law should not compel any parent to send his children to school, any more than it should compel them to send their children to church or communist indoctrination schools. Abolish the public schools and Christians will take over the country and the world that much faster. That is what worries Satan. Why should it worry Christians? Does it worry you? Why? Summary. Christians have been lured by good intentions to vote for a system of compulsory education that the humanists have captured. The humanists have used the tyranny implicit in compulsory education to indoctrinate the children of the Christians. Compulsory attendance laws are no different in principle from compulsory church attendance laws once we acknowledge that all education is religious and that no education is religiously neutral. This is acknowledged by more and more Christians as well as 
more and more humanists, yet Christians continued to support the idea of compulsory education. This is irrational. It is also very expensive for taxpayers. In summary, 1. Biblical law requires people to understand and obey civil law. 2. Biblical law does not require every person to attend a Trinitarian church. 3. For centuries, Western societies did not understand this principle of freedom of conscience. 4. Civil government is not to enforce positive good. It is supposed to restrain public evil. 5. It is not the responsibility of one group of citizens to enforce particular religious ideas on the children of other voters. 6. There can never be a neutral education. All education is inherently religious. 7. It is therefore not the responsibility of one group of parents to enforce a particular education on the children of other parents. 8. The question of making irresponsible parents do this or that about their children's instruction is irrelevant from the point of view of biblical civil law. 9. The integrity of the family must be preserved. 10. No man may lawfully force another person's child to accept a particular view of God, man or time. 11. Biblical civil law only restricts public evil acts. 12. Christians nevertheless support the idea of neutral public education. 13. The civil government is God's lawful monopoly of coercion. 14. Should the policeman run the schools? 15. Compulsory school attendance laws are an infringement on parental authority. 16. They are the equivalent of compulsory church attendance laws. 17. Christians nevertheless support compulsory attendance laws. 18. Compulsory attendance is a form of legalised kidnapping. 19. Coercive education is third-rate education. 20. If state education is so good, why do we need laws to require attendance? 21. Christian dominion is the goal for Christians. 22. If irresponsible humanists refuse to educate their children, what is that to us? 23. Why should we subsidise the education of our mortal enemies' children? 24. They want us to subsidise their teaching our children the principles of humanism. 25. Christians nevertheless support compulsory attendance laws. 26. Why? The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.